I don't know how those pictures make you feel, but I can recognize most of those, but I only grew up with like one of them. And so I watched that and I go, I think I know who that is. But anyway, I don't know how those clips feel with you, but we are talking about Mr. and Mrs. Better Half. We're in week two uh, of our series. We're talking about how in life and in relationships, there's always a better half. And what we do with that reality, what we do with knowing it, uh, is more important than simply just the fact that it's there. So last week, I gave you Oreos. This week, you just have to think about Oreos. So when you, I know, major bummer, right? Don't miss church. You miss Cookie Sunday. That's the, that's the moral of the story, right? So when you twist an Oreo cookie, right, you're hoping for that perfect twist where there's one half that's better than the other. Of course, the frosting is on usually the side that you would say is the better half, unless you're not into that, which is weird. I don't know why you're eating Oreos, but nonetheless... Right? There's a better half, and then we talked about last week how in our marriage we kind of bring this best half of ourself into a relationship, but what we do with that best half, do we keep it to ourselves or do we give it to our spouse? And how do we know if they're giving us their best half or if they're just keeping all the frosting to themselves? So we're going to walk through kind of this illustration, this example. We've been using the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah, and so we're going to finish that story. We stopped halfway through last week, so I'm going to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 29, Genesis 29, if you brought your Bibles. If not, I'd encourage you to slip your hand up. Our ushers are coming around with Bibles right now, and uh, if you'd like to use one of those, we're going to be on page 14, page 14 of the Worship Center Bibles here. If you don't own a Bible, you can just keep this one. Uh, It's our gift to you, but as you're turning there or familiarizing yourself with the story, you may remember last week there were some sound effects that went along with the story, so as we read through it, I'm going to need those again. So gentlemen, your sound effect was a whistle. Do you remember the whistle? That's the one. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. Ladies, I'm not going to do your sound effect, but I'm going to invite you to stare at this wonderful picture of puppies. That's right. Thanks so much. And then there's a third sound effect this week, uh, and this is for everyone. And I want you to make the sound that you make when you see something that would gross you out or that is disgusting, kind of like this face. Yuck, right? That's the third sound effect. So we're going to be picking up this story. Jacob the deceiver, you remember, he's tricked his dad, he's tricked his brother, and now he's running for his life. He winds up at his uncle Laban's farm, and that's where we pick up the story. Genesis 29, verse 16. Listen for your sound effects. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful, gentlemen. That's right. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Right? This is crazy talk. Jacob is head over heels in love. He agrees to pay seven times the amount as what was culturally acceptable for Rachel's hand in marriage, the younger sister. And so he does. Ladies, here's your sound effect. And so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but They seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. I know, right? Can you get any more sentimental than that? And what a guy. Now, if the story stops here, it's a great story, right? The camera pans out, the credits roll. What a fantastic love story. Unfortunately, our story doesn't end there. Jacob, after seven years, gets a little bit tense and a little bit rude. And so in verse 21, he says, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. That's a very, very kind and culturally acceptable translation. However, the words 
words that Jacob uses in this phrase would have been fairly insulting both to Laban and to Rachel, and Laban is Rachel's dad, remember. Not very chivalrous, right? And so we talked last week about how being the better half kind of can wear off over time. Eventually we get deceived into instead of believing that our spouse is the better half, we start to believe that we're the better half. And that leads us into something that we call the cycle of self-deception. I'm not going to review that with us today, but I'd invite you to check out the message last week if you'd like to hear more about that. But this is where we paused our story last week. And unfortunately for Jacob and Leah and Rachel, the story is about to get a whole lot worse. Get ready with your last sound effect. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and he gave a great feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and Jacob made love to her. And when morning came, there was Leah. Yeah, right? I don't know what the night after your wedding looked like, but can you imagine? Imagine seeing your lovely figured bride and instead all you see is a pair of nice eyes. Right? This is what Jacob's morning was. I'm picturing that he wakes up and he sees the Coke bottle glasses sitting on the bedstand and he goes, wait, what happened? No! Right? This is everything that was not supposed to happen. And, and don't, don't miss this, right? The author wants to draw our attention into this story. These physical attributes are very, very important. And for the people who would have first heard this story, they would have seen a little bit of justice in this story, right? Jacob the deceiver has now become Jacob the deceived. And they would have felt this sense of going, oh, finally, he's getting what's coming to him. Let's pick up this story as Jacob is in for a rude awakening. Uh, Continuing on, verse 25. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Notice that play on words with Jacob's name. Laban replied, hey, it's not our custom to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week and then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And so Jacob did. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And Jacob made love to Rachel also. And listen, his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Now, there are so many things wrong with this story, right? (laughs) Especially from like our first century years. Like we can just pick that apart and go, wow, there's a lot happening in there, right? Marrying sisters sounds horrific. Like that sounds like the worst possible kind of torture imaginable. I can't imagine the home life and situation, right? Coupled with the fact that as the verse indicates, there's clearly a better half, right? There's clearly a favorite in the marriage. And add that with the combined powder keg of Jacob working 14 years to marry the one that he loved. There is a lot going on in this story, which is why we've taken two weeks to get here, and we're going to spend the rest of our time today and the next two weeks kind of diving into this story. We're actually going to take a look at each of the main characters in this story, at Jacob, at Leah, and at Rachel, and we're going to break them down into kind of their individual parts, because I think what we see in each of these characters and each person's story, we may not see entirely ourselves, but we see pieces of ourselves, pieces of our brokenness, right? I hope you don't see too much of yourself in this story because if you woke up married to a different person, we should probably schedule a counseling session, right? That's a lot to overcome. Nonetheless, I think that as we look at these characters, as we read their story, that we can learn something about ourselves and hopefully see a tiny bit of ourselves in the midst of that. And so today I'd like to start with what I think is the most misunderstood character in this entire story, and that's Leah. 
Leah is largely used as a pawn. You may remember from last week, she's the ugly stepsister, and her name happens to mean cow in Hebrew. That's the Hebrew translation of the word Leah. Leah in English is beautiful meadow, so if your name's Leah, if your middle name's Leah, not trying to offend you, if you have friends who are named Leah, it means beautiful meadow in English. But in Hebrew, it means cow, right? Her sister is gorgeous, and Leah's got to feel left out left behind. Like maybe she's not good enough. Maybe she's not even worthy of love. I'm not sure if your story lines up with Leah. I'm not sure if you can see yourself in there at all. Maybe you can relate to being the older sister. Maybe you can relate to the idea of always being a bridesmaid but never being a bride. Maybe you're the black sheep of the family. Everybody plays a sport, but you like art. Maybe everybody in your family raises their kids a certain way, but you've made decidedly different principles in your own life. Maybe you can relate to feeling rejected or unlovable like Leah perhaps did. In this culture, Laban says it directly that it was unacceptable for the younger daughter to be married first. He says that honor, that dignity, that duty goes to the older sister. And in Laban's defense, he made a seven-year agreement. And naturally, I would presume that his thought is, surely after seven years of time, Leah will be married and then it will be appropriate for Rachel to take Jacob's hand. And we always think about Jacob and Rachel in the midst of that seven years, right? Jacob is so in love. Oh, that's so sweet. Right, and Rachel, the object of his affection, isn't that such a cute relationship? But what were those seven years like for Leah? What was it it like for her watching her sister in love, literally watching somebody slave themselves away for seven years, seven times the appropriate amount for their perfect, wonderful sister? Meanwhile, for Leah, there's no phone call. There's no knock on the door. Nobody invites her to prom. Nobody is swiping right on Tinder. For Leah, every single day, of those seven years is torture, right? And it shows that she failed to measure up in every way. And so what I think we look at when we see Leah is we just see this picture of somebody who's desperate for love, somebody who is desperate to feel love, to find a place to belong, to be accepted. And time has gone on. Again, she's the older sister. She sees this playing out in her younger sister's life, but it's got to raise questions for her. Why doesn't anybody love me? Why doesn't anybody care about me? What's so broken about me that nobody could possibly love me? And I just wonder if today, if you can relate even a tiny bit with that story. Have you ever been desperate for love? Have you ever found yourself at a place of just wondering if anybody could love you, if God could love you, if a spouse could ever find themselves loving you? Have you ever been at a place in a relationship where you just maybe thought that it was never going to work out for you? Maybe you've been convinced that God's plan for your love life isn't going to pan out and so you're going to help it along. Maybe in a dating relationship, somebody's pushing you to step back from your convictions in one area or another. You know it's wrong, but you're in love, right? Maybe you've been on a date with somebody who didn't share your faith and you're going, man, I'd never date somebody who doesn't hold to the same principles as I do and yet they're so cute though. Maybe this is you when you were dating your spouse or perhaps your first dating relationship, right? We make and produce these situations and these relationships that we end up carrying with us throughout. And I just wonder if you've ever been desperate for love that it made you do something that you wouldn't normally do. Maybe something that was crazy. Maybe something that you thought you'd never find yourself in that experience. But what we're talking about in this series is the way that we ourselves change and our better half begins to shift. Last week, we talked about how 
how when we're in these moments that our love shifts to a noun, something that we desire to acquire and get for ourselves instead of a verb, something that we pour out and lavish on those ones around us. Because here's the point that I think we see clearly illustrated within Leah's life. Desperation causes us to do crazy things. Desperation causes us to do things that aren't rational, that we would perhaps never agree to do. Desperation causes us to fall in love with somebody who is not worthy of our love, or to cling to a love, or to get married. It causes us to take actions that maybe we wouldn't normally consider. As I research and as I process through this, I think that desperation comes a lot rooted in fear. In Leah, we see this playing out in the fear of being alone, the fear of not being enough, the fear of perhaps not trusting in God. See, desperation causes us to watch out for number one. Instead of caring and loving the people around us, it causes us to turn our attention inward, to keep the better half, the best half to ourselves. After all, everyone else has let us down, so the only let us down, so the only person who can take care of us is us. That's the only way that we can receive the love that we deserve. And so I think what we see played out here is the desperation of Leah's story, the desperation of her loneliness, the desperation of her desire to be loved, and it plays out in this crazy kind of story. But desperation over time replaces true love. Not even over time, just instantly. When we're desperate, there's no room for true love. It makes our relationship turn from a being about the person that we love, and instead we make it an insurance policy to keep us from feeling the loneliness or the desperation that we feel. And I think what's subversive about this is that it all happens beneath the surface. Because after all, we're in love, right? I mean, if we're in love and we're so desperate that we would do anything for that person, that makes a really great story, right? Isn't that what makes Jacob's story so endearing, that he's so desperate to marry Rachel that he would give seven years of his life away? We like the desperation of a story. And while desperation may make for a good romance story, it makes for a terrible relationship. A love so desperate that it would do anything begins to compromise itself in its self-centeredness and its self-seeking instead of being about the other person. See, the subtle deception is that when we're desperate for love, that love becomes the object of our attention and our affection. Everything that we do focuses in on this idea of getting love for ourselves, And in our desperation, the tide turns from loving another person to where can I get more. In other words, we end up seeking to get love instead of to give love. We're in a relationship for now what it produces within ourselves instead of what we give to the other person. The better half has shifted and radically so. Which is kind of like Facebook. Here's what I mean. I can't stand when people start selling their new products on Facebook. You know what I mean? If that's you, I'm sorry. It's not directed at anybody personally. I just don't need to be like your resource catalog for whatever direction your life is going in the next step, right? Like, I don't want to see the product. I don't want to see the live video of you trying to sell this thing. Like, just get it off my feed. I love the unfollow button, by the way. Um, none of you are unfollowed. But there are people... <laughs> that are unfollowed because I just don't want to see that, right? I don't want to be a tool for whatever your next MLM project is. I just don't want that. I'm on Facebook to keep up with your life. You're my friend, so I want to follow you, but I don't want to be a tool to get that next step for you. And I think when it comes to our relationships, it works the same way. Nobody wants to be the means to an end. 
right? Even in your relationship, nobody wants to be used and to be the object of your affection just so that you can feel the way that you want to feel. That's what desperation causes us to do. It stops us from putting love out and loving other people and instead turns it inward onto ourselves. And nobody wants to be the tool that exists so that you feel loved. And in our desperation, we find ourselves pursuing that loving feeling without respect or regard to the person that's involved. This is fundamentally how affairs happen, that we seek after affirmation and affection that we don't feel from within our relationship, but we're so desperate for that feeling that we abandon the person that we vowed to live our lives next to in search and in pursuit of a feeling, of an emotion, of something within ourselves. So make no mistake, desperation makes for a great love story, but it makes for a terrible relationship. And if you find a piece of yourself resonating with that desperate feeling, then that lack of love or that feeling to feel the way that you want to, then I would just encourage you to be on guard because desperation will drive us to get love at the expense of being in love. It will cause us to get love, to receive something for ourselves at the expense of being in a loving relationship. Don't believe me? Let's check back in with Leah. Before we jump back into the story, have you ever thought about what causes her to go along with this crazy plan? Like, honestly, if she sees this story playing out, she sees Jacob in love with Rachel, right? She's got a front row seat to their relationships. She sees the way that they care about each other and nurture each other. Jacob is completely heads over heels for Rachel. What would make Leah decide to go along with this plan? What would make Leah decide that because she's never had anybody come to call for her, because she's never been loved, because she's so desperate for that feeling that the best way to go about achieving her hopes and dreams or perhaps the best way to just not feel alone is to wait until Jacob is too drunk to recognize which person he's being with and so she comes into the marriage bed that way. What causes Leah to go along with this plan? I think it's this idea of desperation, this idea that if it's going to happen for her, she's going to have to take matters into her own hands. As she thinks about her future, all she sees, all she can put together is loneliness and nobody coming to care for her. She can't picture any other way around it. And so she goes along with this crazy plan to force Jacob to fall in love with her. Leah is so desperate not to be alone that she does whatever it takes, including abandoning her principles, her convictions, her very idea and definition of love just to fill a void, to fill a gap, to fill this something within her that she can't seem to have any other way. And again, before we write her off as a crazy person, I just want to challenge you to see a bit of yourself in her story. Or perhaps in the relationships around you. As we've talked about, staying in love is different than falling in love. And far too often when life gets hard and marriages get stressed out, our desire is to be loved and to feel loved even at the expense of looking elsewhere. These are going to be broad, sweeping brushstrokes, but I just want to illustrate this for you, that when it comes to a long-term loving relationship, women tend to go towards disinterest. As desire shifts, as it moves, they tend to become disinterested. When they feel unloved, they tend to fall back. They invest themselves in other relationships and become disinterested in their husband. While they used to want to hear all of his crazy stories and wild antics, now they'd rather read a book about romance with Fabio on the cover instead of investing in or creating romance. 
And the problem with this is that it just creates a crazy cycle that spins as her desire shifts towards disinterest. A man's desire tends to shift towards being disengaged. In other words, when they feel disrespected or unloved, men are going to not pursue that relationship and instead are going to pursue places where they do feel respected and loved and admired. This is why so many men lose themselves in their work. It's how affairs happen. It's where pornography creeps up and into the conversation because it's so much easier to get the satisfaction and the fulfillment from a couple of clicks on a computer screen rather than pursuing the person that we vowed the rest of our lives to. As a spouse becomes disinterested, so the other disengages, which causes disinterest, which causes disengagement, and the cycle spins on. All the, wire, all the wild desire is still there, churning just beneath the surface. And both parties are so desperate for love, but instead of pursuing each other, there's too much pain, too much reality, too many skeletons in the closet. And so in our desperation, we pursue love by illicit means in ways that ruin and destroy our marriage and our love. And this gives us perfect insight into this. Leah's story does because in her desperation and her desire for love was never based on a person. She doesn't love Jacob. She's not pining after Jacob. What she wants is something for herself. I want to feel a certain way. I want to feel loved. I want to feel treasured. I don't want to feel alone. And that's what causes her to hitch her wagon to this story and this situation. And the result of which is a lot of pain and a lot of agony. We're going to look at how this plays out in Leah's life. We're back to Genesis 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely now my husband will love me. Leah's unloved by her husband, and so in her love, she names her son Reuben, which in Hebrew, they do a lot of names that are similar to or come from the root word of. And so Reuben sounds like the Hebrew word for he has seen my misery. What a terrible name for a child. If you're Reuben, sorry, it's a great name. I love the historic anti antiquatedness of it. But the reality is that he's, she's naming her child for her brokenness. Do you see this played out? I'm so hurt. I'm so unloved. I'm so miserable. God has seen my misery, and instead of blessing my child, instead I bestow on them my misery. He has seen my misery. Leah is so focused in on her feelings, on her emotion, on everything that she lacks, on every area where she is in insufficient, the love that she wants to get and now is not receiving from her husband, that her brokenness is played out in the lives of her children. This is not love by definition. This is the opposite of love. See, love is others-centric. It's about how our actions can convey the depth of our feelings to another individual. How we feel results in our actions in an attempt to make the other person feel a little bit of what we feel. It's our primary expression to another person. Desperation is the exact opposite of that. It's our selfish attempt to elicit someone else to feel about us the way that we want them, the way that we feel about them. See, love is focused on transferring what is internal into an external reality. Desperation seeks to pull something internal and to make others feel what we feel on the inside. In summary, love is selfless, but desperation is selfish. 
That's how this plays out. Nowhere do we see this more clearly than in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You probably had this read at your wedding. Let me just remind it to us this morning. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. The one that jumps out to me in the midst of Leah's story is the simple reality that love is not self-seeking. And in Leah's story, we see this whole thing kind of culminated and focused in on herself. So when it comes to this season of your life, because our loving relationships are always on a continuum, they're always moving from fighting to love to feeling disengaged or disinterested. In this season, as you fall and as you fight for your love and stay in love and change your love, be careful because desperation can sneak in. Maybe it was at the start of your relationship where you're so afraid of being alone or being rejected that we hide ourselves, our true selves. It makes me say things like, I love camping right? Which is not true, fundamentally. If you don't know me, that's not true about me. Maybe you've said things like, of course I want to see that romantic comedy. Who wants to see the boring new action flick anyway, right? Or maybe it makes you say, man, I love hunting and hiking and football because that's what occupies his entire weekend. Because here's the reality. Well, we may not be crazy like Leah. At some level, we're all desperate for attention and affection and for love from another person in this world. We're hardwired that way. And sometimes, we get in seasons where we'll do anything to pull someone else into the way that we feel about them. Is it any wonder then that our love shifts over time from being to being disengaged and disinterested, perhaps because we weren't fully open and honest and transparent in the first place? Maybe for you it's been after you've been dating or married for a while and love isn't what it used to be. It takes work now and that isn't fun. And what used to make you attracted to your partner now pushes you away, right? You used to love that they couldn't carry on a conversation. It was exciting and it was new and it was fun and now it's just annoying. Maybe you've been there. You've stopped loving your spouse. Maybe you've become disinterested or disengaged and you've started to just take care of number one to make sure that your needs are met. And if there's time and space and energy for a spouse, then that's great, but there's only so much to go around. And too often that means that out of a selfishness to protect and preserve ourself, our desperation has now simply turned inward. We're not even seeking to bring our spouse into that space. We're simply taking care of it ourselves. Or maybe like Leah, you're still desperate. You're still trying to prove yourself to show your love so that then they'll love you back and then we'll all be happy ever after. And the truth is that this is a really hard lesson. Because after all, we all just want to be loved and so we throw ourselves in a new relationship or throw ourselves toward a loved one so desperate to get that feeling only to find out that this time around is just like it was the last time around. Unsatisfying. Leah continues down in her desperation to be loved on the same track. Verse 33 says, She conceived again. When she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. And so she named him Simeon. Simeon means one who hears. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Levi is derived from the Hebrew word for attached, and so she named him Levi. 
Leah so desperate for love that's played out in her son's name. She's so seeking after this affection and attention, which isn't wrong. Again, we all want those things, but the length that she goes to search for it and the source that she goes to search for it is completely wrong. If you're married or still married or just got married or someday you hope to be married, if you haven't learned this lesson yet at some point, then I just want to point it out to you. At some point, your spouse will let you down. No matter how wonderful and perfect, no matter how great everything is now, maybe you're dating and the rose-colored glasses haven't come off, eventually your spouse will let you down. You'll start feeling spurned and maybe even a little desperate. You'll start looking for and seeking after love, sometimes in the wrong places, and that's what Leah does here. She wanted her husband to love her, to desire her, and she was so desperate for that affirmation and that affection that she would go to any length, even deceiving her future husband, naming her kids in an attempt to earn and solicit that love because her desire for her husband was rooted in a desire to be loved, not to give love. And all of us, to some extent, are the same. We all want to be loved even when we aren't willing to show our love to someone else. We're all in this at some level for us. Because when life gets hard, when our needs aren't being met, then we feel justified in our actions to pursue love elsewhere. Is it any wonder that the vows in the United States of America today are as long as we both shall love, not live? The reason this is so prevalent and so normative is because the remedy, the solution is incredibly difficult because we all want to be the better half and to have our spouse love and dote on us, but to be the better halves ourselves means we have to come face to face with the reality that too often our love is rooted in selfish desire for to be loved ourselves. And when we don't feel it, then we stop loving, we disengage or lose interest. Is it any wonder that Jesus' words ring true about the relationship with the person closest to us, just as it does to people who are perhaps strangers? Matthew 5.46, he says, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? In other words, everybody loves people who love them. But if you only love your spouse because they love you, I've got really bad news for you. That's not love. And if you're here going, well, if she would only or if he would just, then we'd be happy. If she'd love me, then I'd love her. And if he would choose to engage and love me, then I would love him. And you're, you're a victim of this desperate love cycle. Because your love, or at least your expression of it with your spouse, is selfish. It's not rooted in the kind of love that God gives us. In a word, your love is conditional. It's a contract. It's an agreement that we make to go, you will, then I will. And if you will, then I'll do my part. So long as you do your part, I'm in. The relationship that God demonstrates, the vows that we make are a throwback to a covenantal relationship. See, God so loved the world that when we were dead in our sins, he sent Jesus, our groom, to ransom us and to pay our price. Not seven times like Jacob did, but far closer to 70 times seven to redeem his bride, which is you and which is me. He didn't do it because we loved him. He did it because of who he was and his love for us was so great and no action that we can take or could take or ever will take will change who he is and his love for us. See, the love that God demonstrates is a covenant. It's based on who he is and the actions that he will take based on his character and nature. When we make vows, the very vows that we stand up and say and make to each other, we covenant to each other. 
We say things like, I will do everything that I can, everything in my power, for better or for worse, for richer or for, for poorer. I'm in this regardless of your actions, as long as we both shall live. Too often when this desperation comes in and when we actually get into a conversation, though, we discover that our marriage has been transformed from a covenant into a contract. And as long as I feel this way and as long as you do your part, I'll do my part. But once those things start breaking down, man, I'm off the hook. The reality, though, is that the covenant that we make has to do with our condition, with the things that we bring to the table. The vows that we make till death do us part are not based on an emotion or another person's action, but on a promise. And when we make our love conditional and contractual, we ruin what marriages can be. A quick side note here. Far too often this conversation is used to allow abuse and atrocities that happen in marriage under the lens of God's guidance. That's not what we're saying here. If there is any kind of abuse going on, physical, mental, emotional, all those kinds of things, you need to seek help and you need to get out now. What we're talking about is the character that we bring into the relationship to be the determining factor in what keeps us in the game. Here's the good news. Leah learned this lesson. It took a long time, but she gets there. Verse 35. It says, She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, and then she stopped having children. This time I'll stop looking for my husband's approval. This time I'll stop trying to earn love and favor to win love. I'll recognize that God is the one who loves me and that when I serve in this capacity, I'm serving the God of the universe. And so if your love, your marriage, or your friendships are conditional, then you're in a contract and not in a covenant. And chances are that your love is selfishly motivated. And the answer is to recognize that your love, your value, and your worth come from God's already displayed and poured out, never-changing love for you. And to let that love from your Heavenly Father fill you and to be the reservoir from which we take the action step of loving everyone around us, including our spouse. Not to spend our energy seeking to earn or solicit love from the people around us because when you have the love of God, you're free to give from the expanse and the overflowing reservoir of all that God has given you. See, real love pushes out desperation. And so wherever you're at in your relationship today, whether it's a relationship with a spouse or a relationship uh, with a friend, the reality is that the things that we do that are selfish, the things that tear down this better half piece of us, are only solved by recognizing God's real love for you. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. We're going to sing one more song. And, and as I do that, I just want to give us space and time and opportunity. I'm going to encourage you to just bow your heads, to reflect back on maybe a piece that stuck out to you, whether it was something I said or something that God whispered in your ear. Maybe it was a point that stood out in the story or a story that happened just this past week with your spouse or with your friendships or whatever it was. And you're just going, man, maybe my love isn't so selfless. Maybe my love and the way that it's poured out isn't exactly in the way that God would have for me. Maybe you're just rocked by the fact that God would love you enough that he would give you and meet all the needs that your soul has. And from that reservoir, we then pour ourselves out. I don't know what it is for you, but I just want you to take a moment with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, and to express that to him to make this a moment, to make this a time, to make it something that could happen to where this would not be simply about a gathering on a Sunday morning, but that this would be a spiritual moment for you 
to talk with your heavenly Father who loves you more than you could ever imagine or explain or expound upon and to ask him to meet your needs, to overcome perhaps the desperation that's characterized your life up until this point, to heal or to fix your marriage, to step into a friendship or an opportunity and to simply go, God, I need more of your love in this area of my life. Maybe I don't understand it. Maybe I don't get it. Maybe that's why I act in this way or that way, God. But in my selfishness and my self-centered love, God, I recognize that I need more of you and that you're the only real answer. Tune me out at this point if there's something that the Lord's dealing with you on. But write it down. Make a note to talk about it at dinner or think about it and pray over it during your own personal quiet times. But make no mistake. Far too often our love is characterized by a selfishness and a self-centeredness and a desperation to feel what we want to feel and it is not from God and it will not save your marriage. It will not even keep your marriage together. But if you want to be the better half, if you want to be the peace that holds the covenant of your marriage together, then you've got to go to God. And you've got to beg him to pour out his love into you so much so that none of the human relationships could ever touch the love of God for you. And then from that reservoir, from that fullness, you pour it out onto spouses, onto kids, onto friends, onto neighbors. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to have a relationship founded and rooted in Christ. And if you're missing that, then nothing else will make sense. So go to him. Ask him, beg him to teach you what real love is. Heavenly Father, God, we're messed up. God, we far too often engage in our human relationships out of a selfish desire to feel what we want to feel. God, forgive us. Give us the courage and the boldness to ask our spouse to forgive us for our selfish actions and transform our love from a contract into a covenant. God, redeem our character and our nature to be so connected with yours that we love out of an overflow of who you are and what you've given to us, not out of anything that any human source could give us to fill us up. You are our God. You are a God who loves us, and we simply come to you and ask you to teach us your ways. And once we have a clearer picture of who you are, God, would you equip us to love the world around us? spouse, friends, kids, neighbors, strangers on the street, God, would we be so revolutionized and transformed by your love displayed in Jesus Christ that we would not be the same. Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you. It is in the name of your son, Jesus, that we ask all of these things and in the strength and power of your Holy Spirit. And all God's kids said... Jesus, you have overcome. Yes!